Good morning again. Good morning, thank you. How is everybody? We're good, we're good, okay, good. It's good to hear you all talking. I, honestly, that could be the rest of our service, but we have some things to look at. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name's Danny, and it's uh, just a privilege to get to uh, share God's word with you this morning. Um, and, and I was, uh, just a personal note, we were, um, we were camping this weekend, so we took the day off from school on Friday with the kids, and we went camping in Big Sur, um, and we went with some friends, and so between the, the uh, three families, there was nine kids uh, under the age of 11, which that's a story for another time. But uh, really what I wanted to just share with you is I was driving home last night, uh, I, I left the family there, but I was driving home from Big Sur last night and driving home, the sun was setting over the ocean, the cliffs are there, the waves are breaking, it's just this like most beautiful space and we live like an hour and a half from like Apple screen backgrounds, right? Like it's, it's this amazing place. We were driving across the Bixby Bridge and my son's like, Wait, I've seen this picture before. He, this is like on all those computers. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but true, I was just like so grateful and praising God for that. And then, and then even more, just the time spent with families from here at church, um, the community that we have here. I was just so grateful for that yesterday. And that has nothing to do with what I wanted to share with you this morning other than I just wanted to share it with you. It was just a, a time of, of gratitude. So. Um, we are in this series called Transform. We've been, uh, we've been using this triangle. I forgot to put it in the slides, but it's this triangle of transformation. Um, at the top is this, this idea of truth. And we talked about that truth is the things that are real. It tells the truth. It's scripture. And Jesus is the embodiment of truth. We talked about community and how they are so good up there. Look at that. They found the slide. I didn't even give it to them. Um, the, the bottom... Their uh, community, just how our influence on each other, the way we encourage each other, the way we bless each other, how vital that is in the process of transformation. We took two weeks, which we could have taken 20 weeks, and talked about the Holy Spirit and how um, he is the source of transformation in us, the very presence of God living in us. And then last week we kicked off this, the last third of the triangle, which is practices, and acknowledging that if we want to transform, Transform. if we want to see change in our own lives, it takes some work. It's not just passive, but there is work that needs to be done. And Steve was here with us, and he talked about prayer. And, and I love how he talked about prayer as access, its alignment, and its authority. And so today we're going to talk about uh, something that goes hand in hand with prayer. And it's probably not uh, a sermon you've heard often, but we're going to talk about the idea of fasting. And as one person joked about it, the practice of starvation. Um, and I don't know about you, but I remember the first time I ever tried fasting. I was 13 years old in high school, and uh, World Vision used to do this fundraiser called 30 Hours of Famine, where they would say to high schoolers, you know, get, raise pledges and raise some money to, to donate to World Vision for, for kids who, who need food, who need care, and, and those kind of things. But also just an awareness of, like, most of the world doesn't eat three meals a day, much less uh, you know, they, actually, most of the world only eats one meal a day or not even a meal a day. And so there's this kind of this dual purpose of fundraising but also awareness of what the world was in. And I remember being uh, in school because you had to start, you know, first thing in the morning on Friday, fasted all day through school. I remember being miserable. And then the idea was that all the youth group came together that night. And this was the brilliance of youth pastors in the 90s. Let's get a bunch of hungry high school kids, stay up all night. Dale's clapping because he did it. Um, <laughs> stay up all night and, like, let's just see how it goes. Um, 
and it was, it was uh, wonderful. But, uh, and then in the morning we broke the fast together. Some really kind people at the church had made soup, which is a really wise way to break a long fast. But a friend of mine uh, and I, being you know, the wise 13-year-olds, we were like, soup is not going to fulfill the hunger from 30 hours. So we walked down to a pizza place, ordered this huge pizza and large sodas, and I've never been more miserable in my entire life. Um, that's not true. There, there have been other times. But that is not a good way to break a long fast, and I learned that, and I said at 13, I'm never doing this again, but that wasn't true, because like a year ago, I was like, I'm going to try fasting again, um, because as you've probably seen, intermittent fasting is, is very popular. You can, if you're going through the grocery store, I'm sure you'll see at least one magazine that has intermittent fasting on it. So I tried it, um, and, and uh, yeah, candidly, it wasn't from a spiritual place. I wasn't trying to do it as a spiritual practice, but I just wanted to try it from a health perspective, but... What became interesting to me is it, it became a spiritual practice. And, um, and I'll just share this with you and, and we'll get into this. But um, Chris and I, when we meet each week, we, we walk when we meet. We do the same thing every week. We walk in laps around this neighborhood. And, um, and there was this spot, like on the course of our walks, I was feeling this, like, I don't really know how to explain it other than feeling like vertigo, right? Like this sort of imbalance or whatever. And I was like, ah, it's just probably just low blood sugar or I'm dehydrated or something while I'm fasting, and um, weeks went by, weeks went by, probably months, and uh, we were out one time, and I was like, the first time around, I felt it, and I was like, wait, this is, this is happening at the same two spots, like along this walk, and I was like, why didn't I realize this before? The second time around, I just stopped for a moment, and I don't know if Chris knows this, because he was talking, but I just quietly prayed, um, and, and just prayed over that place, and then the third time around, I didn't feel that feeling again. And then I started to notice that that was happening in other places when I was walking, like when I was around and, and in the middle of the fast. And I was like, I, I have no idea what's happening here. I have no idea what's happening from a spiritual, spiritual perspective, but I know that it happened. And then when I started to do research about fasting, everyone I've read and everyone I've talked to is in the middle of the fast. They have these incredible experiences and connections with God that they can't really articulate or explain, but they can just say, I, I just feel it. I know it. And at the center of it is fasting. And then to take it further, I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie Dunkirk. Anybody seen it? A couple of us. Okay, it, it is a movie, a uh, Christopher Nolan film. It's uh, recounting this World War II battle that happens in southern France. And essentially what happens is uh, there's like 400,000 troops who are trapped on this beach in, in Dunkirk. The Nazis are invading. They are like 10 miles away, and it's going to be an absolute annihilation. It is awful. What the movie does not show is what's happening sort of behind the scenes, right? Um, they know that they're trapped. There's no other way out. And Winston Churchill at the time, he goes to King George and he says, this is what's going to happen. Like, we have no way out. And King George says, well, we need, to, we need to do something. And so he calls for a national day of prayer and fasting in England. The very next day, Westminster Abbey is packed full of people with lines out the door for blocks, cathedrals, uh, mosques, synagogues, churches are packed on that day. And people who were there tell the story, we didn't really know what we were praying for, but we knew we were praying. And they were fasting, and they were just coming before the Lord begging for deliverance, because this, was, this would have been a major shift in the war. And so the very next day, for reasons no one can explain, these, there's like brigades of tanks, infantry, all these people that are just miles away from the beach, and it was certain that that was the end for those troops. No one can explain it. Hitler just ordered that they all stop. There's no reason for it. Still can't explain it. 
The next day, uh, or, or a couple days later, it started to rain, which caused this fog on the beach. And um, so the airplanes from the Nazis that were just wreaking havoc on the beach and on the boats and, the, and making it impossible for them to get off the beach, like they couldn't see anymore, so they stopped. One of the critical ways for getting the troops over the English Channel was the English Navy commissioned all of these uh, civilian boats, 850 of them, and their owners, who are not sailmen, sail, sailors in any sense of the word, to go across the English Channel, which would typically be choppy and probably tear up most of these boats. Um, and there was a story of these guys, it's a PE teacher and a movie theater manager. And they talk about the English Channel being like a bathtub. That's the word they use, a bathtub. Normally it's choppy and all over the place, but they said it was like glass. And then the last thing, that the, they call it the fourth miracle of Dunkirk, is this little wind blows up in the perfect direction to take all the smoke from all of the bombing, and it completely covers the beach. And so 338,000 troops get on these boats undetected and, and go across the English Channel and are saved in England. And it, again, historians and war experts are like, this is an absolute blunder from the Axis people. Winston Churchill, who's not a Christian, he's not a God-fearing man, he said it's a miracle. And King George knew exactly what the answer was. It was prayer and fasting. And so you have this incredible deliverance, and at the center of it is prayer and fasting. There's biblical examples. We could go into a bunch of them, but if you've read the book of Esther, I won't tell the whole story, but essentially the king of Babylon, he picks a new queen. She's a Jewish person. They're in exile, and the king gets tricked into signing a decree to kill all of the Jews. And she goes essentially and says... She actually asks, her, her uncle comes and they communicate, and they're communicating secretly, and he says, you have to do something. If you remember the, the line, for such a time as this, if you've heard that, this is from that story. And she says, I can't go before the king because it's a death sentence to go without being invited, and he says, you have to do it. And he says, okay, get all of the people, all of the Jews, to fast and pray with me for three days. I'll fast and pray, and then I'll go and I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. So she goes to the king. She asks, and he relents. He reverses the decree, saves all the people. And again, at the center of this deliverance is prayer and fasting. So you have these incredible stories, personal and large scale, and there's this unexplainable, in, in a way, uh, deliverance and miracles involved in them. And it's fasting. And at the same time, it's largely missing from our experience today. I did a, a little personal survey that I asked some people to participate in, and uh, just 20% of people who responded said that they actively and regularly participate in the spiritual discipline of fasting. So Rob and I were talking this week, and he asked me, what are you going to do at the end of your message? What are you going to ask people to do? And so I'm just going to lay all the cards here on the table. I'm going to ask you to try fasting. But before we do... I want to look at some, some uh, more stories in Scripture. We've said that the, uh, the, these practices are practicing the way of Jesus, so I want to look specifically at what he says. Look at a little bit of church history, and then we'll talk about some practical steps for how to engage this ancient spiritual practice as part of our transformation. Does that sound good? Well, even if it doesn't, we're going to do it anyways. <laughs> uh, so it's important that we define terms as we start to talk about things. Um, and when we're talking about fasting... In its simplest form, it's just not eating food. And when we talk about it as a spiritual practice, 
We say it like this, it's on your card there if you want to pull that out. It's abstaining from all food for a period of time, not as an end to make us more holy, but as a means to make room for the holiness of God to settle on our bodies. And like I said, we're in an interesting time because fasting has become somewhat popular culturally, right? There are health benefits that are, have, have been discovered and researched, and it has, and it is. There's, there's amazing benefits uh, to, to, our, to our health when we're fasting. And there's this rich history of fasting in the church that goes back to at least 1400 BC. Um, Moses, when he's getting ready to receive the Ten Commandments, he fasts for 40 days in preparation to hear from the Lord. That's the first mention of it in scripture, and that's 1400 BC. It continues uh, through the time of Jesus, through the time of the New Testament, and all the way up until about the 18th century. Practicing the way, which is an incredible resource for some of these uh, sort of like critical spiritual practices. It it talks about fasting and four things that happen. I think this is on the card too. Four things that happen in our bodies when we're fasting. First, it's breaking the habit of pursuing personal fulfillment through pleasure. It's revealing what's in our heart. It's reordering our desires. It's drawing on the power of God to overcome sin. And so for centuries, this has been considered one of the most critical and powerful of all the practices of Jesus and some of the best ways to integrate our entire person, including our body, into the transformation process. And so why is it missing for most of us today? One of the key moments in history is the age of enlightenment. We could say this about a lot of things today. But particular to this one, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, talks about sort of the progression of the human consideration of the supernatural, right? So before the Enlightenment, pre-Enlightenment, he would say it is impossible not to believe in God, right? Whether it was God, like the true God that we talk about, that we profess here as Christians, or deity in some kind. You have Greek mythology, all of that stuff. Whatever it was, everybody believed in something, pre-Enlightenment. Post-Enlightenment, he says it's possible to not believe. The Enlightenment, sort of the, the, the foundation of it is that human reason becomes the highest form of intelligence, meaning if a, the, if a human mind can't reason it and explain it, then it probably doesn't exist. And so you introduce the possibility to not believe in the supernatural. And then he says late modernity, it becomes impossible to believe. So he talks about this idea that we live in an age defined by naturalism and self-fulfillment. Naturalism is the idea that only natural laws and forces operate in the universe. And self-fulfillment is the idea that we are responsible for accomplishing all of our desires and longings. And so regarding fasting, what Taylor and others suggest is that with the rise of human reason and the decrease of the consideration of the supernatural, a practice that is rooted in the connection with the supernatural and denying our own desires, logically, it doesn't make sense to participate in something like that. And I would say this is one of the main reasons why we as Christians, followers of Jesus, who would say we want to lay down our cross and deny ourselves and follow the way of him, this is one of the main reasons that we should consider this practice of fasting. It's a stand against the pull of cultural individualism and self-exaltation and is literally denying ourselves and denying our human longings and desires. And so as we talked about practicing the way of Jesus, that's what these practices are rooted in. So let's begin looking at scripture with him. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus, probably Jesus' most famous, famous sermons, Matthew 6, he only mentions three spiritual practices. He talks about prayer, 
He talks about generosity or giving to the poor, and he talks about fasting. This is what he says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret. Notice he doesn't start with if you fast or if you feel like fasting. He says when you fast. By Jesus' time, people were fasting twice a week, and he's assuming that his followers will do the same. But let me take a minute to just show you where this comes from because I think it's really amazing. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into the Old Testament, so stick with me, okay? So as we said, the first mention of fasting in the Bible is Moses fasting for 40 days, 40 nights to prepare to receive the Ten Commandments. Out of the Ten Commandments come all of these laws for Israelites as they seek to follow God. And there are laws about uh, dealing with ceremonies and remembrance, ceremonies of remembrance and purifications for sin. And one of these ceremonies is called the Day of Atonement. It talks about it in Leviticus 23. It says, the tenth day of this month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. So the Day of Atonement is all about purifying God's dwelling place among the people and the cleansing of sin. And in preparation for this day, the Israelites were required to deny themselves. And that really means to fast. And whatever food they would have eaten in that preparation, they take it and they offer it as worship and, and a sacrifice and an offering to the Lord. The words used there for deny yourself are also used to mean afflict your soul, which sounds really uncomfortable. But it's this idea of forcing suffering on our bodies as a symbol. And in this case, it's a symbol and a connection to the ritual cleansing that's happening. Because the process of sin removal is not without pain. And so fasting in this sense is whole body active engagement in repentance. But let me try and explain what's happening here and hopefully this will make even more sense in a minute. So over a thousand years before Jesus, the time when they did this, God wanted to live among his people. But the only way that God could maintain his presence among sinful people was through this system of sacrifice. And so once a year there's this special sacrificial process and it's called the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would come before God, he would enter into the Holy of Holies. It's like God's living room. God literally lives there. No one can go in there and live to tell about it. It's so sacred. And the, secret, uh, the, the, the priest would sprinkle blood of a sacrificed goat in that space as a symbol to purify that space from the sins of the people that had tarnished it. And this process made it possible for God to dwell among the people. Next, the high priest would take another goat this goat would stay alive, but he would ceremonially, ceremonially place all of the sins on the head of this goat and send it out into the wilderness. Okay, now the wilderness is important. I promise we're getting somewhere. Stick with me for a minute. The wilderness is understood by people as this abyss, right? You, there's nothing good out there. You go out there to die, basically. And more than that, they thought that the, the wilderness was ruled by a spirit called Azazel, which is at least a demon, but maybe even thought of as the devil. And so what they're doing is they're putting their sins on this goat, the scapegoat, they're sending it out there as a like sort of prank joke to the devil that lives out there, right? This is sort of this passive aggressive confronting the devil, right? So the day of atonement was a purifying of God's dwelling place and sending the sins of the people out into the wilderness. And the preparation for this is to fast. 
And this is the fasting that Jesus is referencing on the Sermon on the Mount, the once a year fast in preparation for this glorious day of sin being taken away and removed. But let me take this one step further because when Jesus begins his ministry, he's baptized. Remember, you can read about this in Matthew 3 and 4, the whole context. God says from heaven, this is my son whom I am well pleased. A dove ascends on him. He receives the spirit. And then the very next thing, Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So based on everything we just looked at and said about the Day of Atonement, look at some of these common themes. Jesus was led into the wilderness, tempted by the devil, after fasting. So as Jesus begins his ministry, he is doing the very same afflicting of his soul that the Jewish people did in preparation to have their sins removed. He's, as he's afflicting his soul, he's going out into the wilderness, the same wilderness the scapegoat went out into with the sins of the people. The same wilderness that's thought to be ruled by the devil. But Jesus doesn't just passively, aggressively confront the devil. He confronts him and overcomes him. So Jesus begins his ministry that would eventually fulfill the day of atonement completely on the cross. The full and complete deliverance, not just of a troop of soldiers, not just of an individual, not of a people group, but the deliverance of all humanity for all time And again, fasting is at the center of it. So why am I telling you all of this? One, I just wanted to show you first how amazing the Bible is. How amazing scripture is. The Bible Bible Project guys say the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so on this one hand, we have this incredible story of Jesus stepping into this sacrificial ritual system, the Day of Atonement. He's taking on the role of the scapegoat, and God uses the biblical authors to show it so beautifully. And the fact that Jesus did that should fuel our worship and praise. It should just drive us in pure awe of who he is and what he's done. But on the other hand, we have this very practical example that in his fasting, Jesus is aligning himself with the way of God. Quite literally for him, the way of the cross. But he's also showing that in full reliance on the spirit comes an amazing amount of spiritual authority. So much so that he can resist the devil himself. This is the same devil that introduced sin and brokenness and rebellion towards God into the world way back in Genesis 3 in the temptation of Adam and Eve through food, by the way. And Jesus confronts the devil, stands up to him and his temptation without food. Are you with me on this? There's an incredible power that maybe we can't even explain in the practice of fasting. It's not surprising Jesus would teach about this spiritual authority. And if you remember a couple of months ago, Rob looked at this passage in Mark where the disciples were able to drive out demons and spirits, but there was this one instance where they couldn't. And then they come and they ask him and they said, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Now some translations don't include and fasting, And we can get into that discussion later. But the point that I think Jesus is trying to make is that spiritual authority only comes, some spiritual authority that is, only comes from the deep connection with God that happens through regular rhythms of spiritual disciplines. And this is what Jesus models in the wilderness. 
Let me show you one other example of uh, fasting in Scripture. Later in the Old Testament, the prophets uh, would introduce a theme called the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord really, uh, it talks about multiple things, but there's two major events that the Day of the Lord refers to. One is when uh, God would pour out his Holy Spirit on the church. Right? We, we look at this as the new covenant. Dale talked about this, this transition from the Old Testament being a time of Holy Spirit visitation where the Holy Spirit would come and go. It would come on people and it would go. But they looked forward to a day when the Holy Spirit would come and stay in people. This is one way that they referred to the day of the Lord. The other one is the end of time. When God finally ushers in his kingdom, he establishes his rule on the earth. This is the book of Revelation. It's incredible. And those are the two references of the day of the Lord. And in the book of Joel, the prophet talks at length about the day of the Lord. And multiple times he says, in anticipation of this day, to return to God with fasting. Joel 1.14, declare a holy fast. Joel 2.12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting. Joel 2.15, declare a holy fast. See, the purpose of these fasts in the prophets is intercession. It's this sense of desperation. It's a deep longing to see God move and deliver on his promises. And the call is to gather together in anticipation and, to, and in preparation for the movement of God. In 1968, Arthur Wallace wrote this book called God's Chosen Fast. And it's long been recognized as sort of the preeminent book on biblical fasting. And at the end, he really, he closes the book with, uh, with a pretty intense challenge. And so speaking on this idea of uh, preparing for God's movement and, and looking forward to the ushering of his kingdom, he says this, have we any right to expect the fulfillment of these wonderful promises without obedience to the conditions? He says, if we really want to see these things happen, and we know that, they t that they're called on by the prophets, to prepare and anticipate in fasting, there's a disconnection. And are we willing to put ourselves in that place to see it come to, to pass? John Mark Comer calls this idea that when we're fasting, it's the idea of amplifying our prayers. And I love that. One more thing, and then we'll get into some practical steps on how to do this. Um, after Jesus, the early Christians continued to fast. The, the New Testament talks about it over 30 times. We won't get into all of them, but there's some up there on the screen for you. And uh, there's a book that, uh, the, that the apostles wrote. It's the earliest Christian writing we have outside of the New Testament. It's called the Didache. You can buy this on Amazon, by the way, but it's written around 70 AD, and it's writings of the apostles that deal with church organization, rituals within the church, church ethics, command, and, and, and their command in there is to fast twice a week. And the, what's interesting is the early church leaders moved fasting from the Pharisaical tradition that they, they required people to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. They moved it to Wednesdays and Fridays. And the reason they did it is beautiful. It's because Jesus was betrayed on Wednesday and he was crucified, cru crucified on Friday. And similarly, they moved the Sabbath, which we're going to talk about next week, from Saturday to Sunday, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So in the early church, you have this beautiful practice every single week, a physical connection with the passion of Christ every single week, with his betrayal, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, and it's a whole body engagement in that. And so the reason for giving you this whole case on fasting is because we have become convinced 
that we as followers of Jesus, we as Calvary Church, we as people who are trying to become more like Jesus, who want to see rebuilding and renewal happen in our, in our midst, we become convinced that we should be regularly fasting. And for all the reasons that we've talked about, to be like Jesus, to prepare to hear from God, to plead with God, to amplify our prayers, to prepare for Jesus' return, to feel the discomfort of our broken world, to align with the agony of the cross, to stand up to culture, to grow in closeness with God, to gain spiritual authority. We could go on, but those are just a few. So for a minute, how do we do this? Um, I'll tell you what I do, and then I'll, we'll just talk about some of the, we'll get into a little bit what's on your card here. But for me, um, I wanted to start to get back to what the early church said. And so on Wednesdays and Fridays, I fast from sun up to sun, sun down. Some days I have deeply meaningful prayer time um, and, and connection with God. Some days I'm uh, hungry and impatient and it's frustrating. But every time I become expectant for what God is gonna do one way or another. Every time I get amazing offers to eat something, like to go out to lunch on that day and, I, and it pains me to have to say no, but I do it um, and I love it. Um, and at the end of the day, I, at the end of the fast, I break it by eating something that's really good. I uh, take Psalm 34, 8, literally, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I just end that time just sitting for a moment and praising God and thanking him for how good he is. Many people will break the fast by taking communion. Many people will break the fast by eating something small. There are lots of ways to do it, but that's just how I do it. So for you, if you've never fasted before, our encouragement would be to start small. Maybe it's just fasting one meal once a week. You might say, oh, that's too easy. So maybe it's two meals, or maybe it's 12 hours, or maybe it's a 24-hour fast. Whatever it is, take a step to put yourself in that place of discomfort. Many of you uh, may already participate in intermittent fasting in some way. I would encourage you to take it from a health discipline and move it to a spiritual discipline. Again, the point is to put our bodies into a state of discomfort and then to use that discomfort as a, as a way to point us into connection with God. So that's why we have this prayer card. When you feel the discomfort of hunger, it should point you to prayer. And so you can use the prayer card that we gave you last week or you can grab one in the lobby. You can praise Jesus for the suffering that he endured on your behalf. You can pray for those who are hungry, not by their own choice. You can pray for someone you know is struggling. You can ask God to speak to you. You can wrestle with God about something that you want to see change in your life. This last Friday, as we were getting ready to camp, I was, on, I was fasting, and I was hungry, and I was just asking God, would you teach me patience today? Every time I felt hungry, I was like, God, would you teach me patience? I desperately want to be more patient with my little kids and, and to be there for them. And I tell my kids all the time that you only get better at something when it's hard. Right? If you're practicing piano and it's easy, you're not getting better. You're just maintaining what you already know. If you're running and it's easy, you're not getting faster. You're just maintaining what you already do. And so this is what Jesus is modeling in the, in the wilderness. He goes out there to test himself. Could he, completely emptied of divinity and humanity, reliant only on the Spirit, stand strong to the mission he was sent to accomplish? His answer was yes. But we have this opportunity in fasting to do this self-examination. We're putting ourselves in a space in longing for food to assess when I long for something, how do I respond? What would I normally do with that longing? 
What do I do with other longings in my life? The last thing I would say to be practical is to do this in community. Fast with your spouse or significant other, a group of friends, your community group, whatever it may be, but commit to something together and do it together and then share your experience with each other. It might be, might be good, it might be bad the first time, but just let it be what it is and share that with each other and walk through it together. If my little survey is an accurate sample size, which I, I think it probably is pretty close, 20% of you in here do regularly practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. Would you just share that, what your experience has been this week? Would you find somebody who doesn't and just share it with them and, and encourage them? The reality is there isn't a right way and a wrong way to practice fasting. It's a journey to discover for you how it works with you, between you and God. And so, um, there's, again, there's more ideas on your, your fasting card here, I encourage, but I would encourage you to take a step this week. Just see what happens. Try it. Because the cultural mindset that we're surrounded with is that anything uncomfortable isn't good. But in fasting, we actively deny the way of the world, the desires of the flesh, and focus those desires on God. It pushes us into a deeper, more holistic experience with him. And through his spirit, it's in those spaces that we can see transformation begin to happen. So I'm going to invite you just to take a second to reflect and spend a moment with, with God. And, I'm, and I would just ask you to, as you're praying with him, to think about two things. First and foremost, as we talked about Jesus fulfilling the Day of Atonement, would you just spend a moment and praise him for the goodness of that reality? Would you praise him that he, on the cross, delivered you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? 